This is Aliens and Artists. Part one of our conversation with Kimberly Lafferty. Kimberly is a scholar practitioner specializing in human development and extraordinary experiences. She's a seasoned teacher of Indo-Tibetan contemplative psychology, leading hundreds of hours of trainings in Mahayana, Vajrayana, and classical yogic philosophy worldwide. She also went to Catholic school and was kicked out of confirmation class. We explore building relationships with Fae, Celestials, and other non-human entities, as well as meeting your unborn child and encountering rainbow-bodied animals. To quote Kimberly's own journal, the final fucking takeaway is that we are not alone. Well, maybe we begin with a, a little bit of childhood context. We'll zoom through really quickly, um, but just so your the listeners know who I am. I was born in the early 1970s in the Bay Area. And growing up there in the 415, as we say, it really is a new age breadbasket, you know, especially during the 70s and 80s, my formative years. And so I grew up really breathing the air of, um, you know, anomalous questions. There were, new, you know, good new age bookstores that I could spend time and, Although my parents, um, who were who were divorced and separated, I was with my mom. They were, you know, the agnostic, modern agnostics uh, of the day, with you know a lot of, of, of hippie culture. Um, they we didn't really talk about uh, you know anomalies or spirituality or religion around the dinner table. Um, and yet it was just sort of accepted as reality um, that there were past lives and, and there was something mysterious going on. And interestingly, my parents decided to put me in Catholic school when I was in elementary school. Uh, it had been where my father had gone and so there was a bit of a family tradition there. And I actually found the traditions and framework of Catholicism a great relief <laughs> because it was a place where we actually talked about how to be good and how to behave and um, talked about spirituality um, and things like the Holy Spirit and angels and saints. And throughout my childhood, I had like so many of us, if not all of us, since the presence, you know, capital P presence of others. You know, I, I'd had some past life recall when I was quite little um, that my mother diligently wrote down and supported and told me I wasn't crazy. And around, you know, age nine or 10, I started to feel quite strongly what I codified as the Holy Spirit, because I didn't know what else to call it. There was the father, you know, we'll add the mother, the father, the mother, and the Holy Spirit. And I, the Holy Spirit was, it was just a sort of intangible, invisible presence. And I began to really feel this in a reciprocal way when I would be quiet in my bed at night and meditate my mother had gone to a bunch of Esalen workshops, you know, in the 70s and had taught me how to do sort of Stan Grofian style breath work in my bed before sleep. And so I had these 
very simple tools of, of relaxing the body um, piece by piece and taking deep breaths that I've realized and found would get me to the state of just company, like capital C company of, of feeling guided and not alone. But I know my fifth grade teacher who was a nun or other friends, I would get funny looks. Like it, it became quickly clear that these experiences were not things we were supposed to talk about. So then I go through grammar school and high school, and I'm, I am obsessed with what we would think of, of now as new age topics, just obsessed with the questions of why we are here and what are we doing and what's the purpose of life and why do I feel this company and this presence and what is that? And as I went into teenage years, like most of us do, I got more argumentative and eventually was kicked out of confirmation class and basically pushed out of the church. And it's how I felt. And I actually literally was kicked out of confirmation class and really felt like the church left me, that I didn't leave the church. And the questions I, I was asking, probably in not the most skillful way, but and really weren't welcome. I had a, fortunately, I, I kind of stayed with Catholicism. I really wanted to work it out with the church. Like I really wanted to find my place there um, because looking outside of the framework uh, was just this, this uh, sort of dearth of meaning. I had sort of blown through the new age scene. I'd gone to the harmonic convergence when I was 15 at Mount Shasta, you know, I I had done all the things that I could do in the 70s and 80s. And I, I had just found it for me lacking. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of depth and philosophical depth, I mean. There wasn't a lot of interest in, in, in finding the answers I was looking for. It was all sort of, oh, it's all your projection, find your own truth. And that, that wasn't really landing for me. I also had been born on St. Teresa of Avila's feast day. And my mom, without knowing that, had named me Teresa. My middle name is Teresa. And when I learned this, I, I started reading her works. I was 13, 14. And, and as I said, my connect, you know, I felt connected to the church because I developed a deep connection and relationship with her and felt the answers I was looking for, I, I was getting glimpses of in her work. The Book of My Life, her autobiography, as well as The Interior Castle. But by the time I graduated high school, um, I'd gone into a bit of spiritual despair. I was still asking and questioning, but I felt rejected by the church. And off I went to college and thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll find the people who want to talk about what I want to talk about, you know, the mystical things and the big questions. And maybe I'll find somebody who knows the answers to these in college. And I went to college and of course, liberal arts schools in the 90s are not what they are today, uh, although, you know, it's getting better. But, you know, the religion, you couldn't even major in religion where I went to undergraduate. It was a minor at best and was kind of relegated to the outer reaches of academic respectability, like a lot of the humanities have been, and, and Jeffrey Kripal is addressing that and talking about that a lot in his work right now, which I really appreciate. And so I took a couple of religion classes and when is basically, I think I took all the religion classes. 
and um, you know, was intro- <laughs> introduced to Buddhism there. And something really landed for me when I first read about this was Indian Buddhism um, at the time. There was something just so satisfying about a philosophy that just admitted that life was full of suffering. It just straight up admitted it. Like this sucks. Like you can't get through human life without trauma. You know, it's traumatic being human. And just straight up admitted that from the outset. And there was something strangely satisfying to me about that. Because then, of course, as you continue to study, there is uh, a way to to stop the suffering. Apparently, there's a path to stop that suffering and there is an end to stop that suffering. That is the claim of the four noble truths. So, I, you know, I got interested there, but literally did as much as I could, went to psychology and sadly found in even the psychology department, I, I didn't find my place there. It seemed like it was, you know, just a lot of behavioralist, Cartesian, nuts and bolts experiments, which didn't really interest me, or it was um, kind of archetypal Jungian stuff, which I adore and still adore. But I, I sort of felt like I'd been there and done that. I was looking for a mashup between the two. So didn't find it in psychology. Graduated from undergrad and was in quite a bit of depression, actually. I, yeah, I, I was depressed. That's the truth. And I also think that's pretty common for for our young adults and, and of course, common in general. I, I just hadn't found what, you know, the, the community and the conversation that I was looking for. And when I looked at graduate programs, I didn't find it either. So I thought, well, I might as well just sort of numb that out a little bit and get on the horse, the cultural horse of of doing what I was supposed to do, which is I needed to do. I had some student debt. I needed to pay that. I needed to get a job. I had an absolutely wonderful, very nice boyfriend that we were supposed to get married and live in Marin County with a Volvo. You know, I mean, I had the whole track going (laughs) and I just got more depressed. So fast forward a few years to where it gets interesting. I was 27 or so. And yeah, I was 27 and I had climbed the corporate ladder, you know, tried out modernism for all it's worth and was, you know, a young, successful woman looking, working for a very large coffee company and running a a chunk of it on the East Coast. And I had, you know, gotten the job and had the fancy boyfriend and made the money and, and I was absolutely miserable. I had somehow stopped asking those questions because nobody seemed to be interested. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? What is our soul? You know, what is the nature of reality? And I was living in Boston and one, you know, just kind of at the, you know, really an existential crisis, kind of a midlife existential crisis at like 27. And all I, I just remember it was a sunny day. This was in the south end of Boston on the fourth floor, this very airy, high-ceilinged, beautiful apartment and filled with books and, you know, all the things that you would think I, I would be happy with. And I was just miserable, just absolutely existentially miserable. I felt like I, I didn't know how to be happy and I didn't know how 
would be who, who could show me how to be happy. And so I did what I had done since I could walk, which is I put on some music and started to dance, you know, and you kind of make sure nobody's looking, you know, so you can dance your heart out. And I had been dancing my prayers, really, as I said, my whole life. It was a way to move through whatever I was feeling when I, when I didn't know what else to do. And there was a, there was something different about this time. Like I was lower, I felt lower than I'd ever been. And I was so desperate for help for, I remembered what it felt like to be in the capital P presence of the company, you know, of Holy spirit of, I knew, I remembered that I wasn't alone. I just hadn't felt it in so long. And I was so like desperate that I just let go. There was this sense of letting go and letting go and, and being willing to die. And, and I'm, I was not suicidal, not even the least. Uh, you know, I was, I'm not saying that. But there was just this willingness just to give it all up. And it was, it was energetic. It wasn't conceptual. And the more I sort of just let go on the inside the more my body and my breath took over is really the only way I can describe it. It's like my breath started to lead and my body followed. And I found myself dropping into various, you know, what I now know are pretty traditional yoga asana poses. At the time I'd taken a couple of, you know, yoga classes when I was a kid at the local Palo Alto rec center, you know, but I literally like two classes under my belt. But I would flow from these dance moves into these poses and start to hold them. And it was my breath leading the way. It was absolutely Stuart, my breath. And I danced and I dropped. And, you know, of course, you know, suffering was being eased through this because I wasn't, quote unquote, thinking, you know, at least conceptual thoughts. It was just breath and movement. I slowed down and I found myself in the Sanskrit is uh, Pachimottanasana. It means forward folding bend. And this is where, you know, you're sitting on the ground on your bum and your legs are straight out in front of you. And your hands are on your feet if you could reach them. And I found myself, you know, it was the breath moving me in this position gradually with each breath, like a snake. You know, my back was moving like a snake moving closer and closer, my face closer and closer to my legs on each breath as I surrendered until I found myself like nestled so comfortably with my face pressed into, you know, between my knees, my straight legs are straight out in front of me, my hands are on my feet, and my face is like cradled, like the most comfortable couch you've ever been on over my straight legs. Now, I'm, I'm pretty flexy. You know, I'm one of those like irritating flexi girls, but it was blissful. Like it shouldn't have felt this good. You know, like it was, it, there was no sense of stretching or warm, you know, it was just absolutely blissful. And that bliss enabled me to, to let go even more because right? it felt so good, you know, not to overthink it. And and as soon as a little thought would come in to start to analyze what's going on, like I remember 
thinking, and by the way, I wrote all of this down. So I have this right after, so I have all of this recorded, which is great in my journal. I remember thinking, wow, this shouldn't be this comfortable. And then I would just let it go. You know, I wouldn't follow the analysis, the mental analysis going on. And so my breath is getting deeper and I'm my, the undulation of my back stops. I get go into stillness, but it's interesting, Stu, my, I had my fingers, like my pointer finger and my middle finger locked around my big toes, which I've since learned is, you know, something called a bunda or a lock, you know, which is classical for how you circulate energy in your body. And I start, it's like the energy in my body was moving me. I actually started rocking left to right on my sit bones. You know, I'm on a wood floor, so it was very noticeable. And I'm rocking in this rhythmic, it's happening to me. You know, the breath is happening to me. I'm rocking in this rhythmic sensation left to right for a while until it slows down. It's like slows, speeds up and slows down. And the next conceptual thought I remember and I wrote down was there was this sense of being in my ceiling and looking down at my body and you know out of body experience and this is interesting though if I remember thinking am I safe you know like am I safe to leave my body am I safe like that was the question and suddenly like a um, telescope it's like I could see the whole block I could see down the four flights of stairs, you know, there was no elevator. I could see the block outside. It just in an instant, I could see everything. I knew the door was locked. I knew I was safe and I could go. What happened after that? It's, it's, it is beyond words to describe, you know, we just, we just try and find words to point to it. There was an experience of just, you know, the scintillating darkness, um, which then turned into radiant light. There was a incredible amount of, of bliss. I wrote in my journal afterwards, it was as if I was all things and all things was bliss, you know, words like that, like there was no individual. Um, although there, there was an awareness of a watcher, you know, I was, a, I was a, aware of seeing in an extremely slight way just this absolute radiance, which I you know, knew without concept was me and not me. Um, and it was all things, it was all things. Um, there, were, it, uh, there was a very strong sense of consciousness, like I was consciousness and consciousness was all things. Yeah, and I have no idea how long, you know, how, how much time passed or how long I was there. You know, interestingly, again, later, um, just again, to put context in it at the opportunity, the classical name in the, in the Yoga Sutra, at least, and, and in Tibetan as well for this sort of experiences is what we call the clear light. It's Nirbhasa in Sanskrit and Osel in Tibetan. And, um, you know, I saw the clear light, but I didn't know that at the time, which was my very own nature and everybody else's too. The next thing you know, I come out of it and it's interesting. I, I came out of it like I went in, it was physiological. I was rocking, it's like suddenly my breath started again. I wasn't breathing during that time. 
Um, and it's not that I thought, oh, I'm not breathing. It's that you come out of it and you realize you weren't breathing. And that that's correct. It's, it's a, uh, you, you understand that you weren't breathing. So my breath starts up deep and slow. I do the rocking to the left and the right, just naturally. It's like I'm entering, oh, oh and there was a strong feeling of coming down. There was a strong sensation of coming back down into my body that was, you know, felt physical. Um, then rocking left and right, deep, deep breaths to slowly come out of it. My third eye is on fire, um, like heat, strong heat, uh, pleasant, not uncomfortable. Yeah, my you know, shashumna or central channel, you know, the, the energetic channel that runs straight up and down um, my body. I wouldn't call it a super strong uh you know, Kundalini experience like otherwise, although it certainly was, I, it's not like that was on fire. It was really centralized at my third eye, but it was very blissful. Like my whole body was really suffused with bliss. And I went and grabbed my journal and I sat down and I started writing. And, you know, that was kind of part one of the experience. And well, I'll go into part two and, and maybe part three, but yeah, that, that moment changed kind of everything and nothing. And so I started writing down um, what happened, you know, just sort of blow by blow, trying to get down as much as possible. And the last, the last sentence I wrote, I, I just looked it up. The last sentence I wrote on that first, you know, few pages I wrote when I was just trying to write down what happened is the final fucking takeaway is that we are not alone. So um, then, Part two started and all in all, by the way, just to give, you know, again, context, it's part one, part two, and you know, maybe part three, sort of it, it, the essence of it lasted, you know, 36 hours or so. I started writing like, you know, a good, I knew to get my journal and insights started popping like popcorn. I, it, it, it's like the experience, there were no words within the experience. And then the words started pouring out and, and, you know, I'll, I'll share a couple of them. One of them was, and this has stayed with me, Stuart, which is just interesting. There was a very, very detailed sense of precognition. So for listeners, that's, you know, like getting a sense of the future. Um, very strong. Like I wrote in, in my journal, you're going to spend the rest of your life teaching people how to have this experience through Tibetan Buddhism and yoga. And again, I had never studied Tibetan Buddhism. I'd studied a little bit of Buddhism in you know, college, Indian Buddhism. I'd taken a couple of yoga classes. How those two fit together, I had no idea at the time. But it's like I saw the, my purpose. I, I, you know, it's just like, this is what you're going to do. Now you need to go study Tibetan Buddhism. You know, it was like an instruction. I, during the next few hours, and it's a story for another time, but I went out, I wanted to celebrate. You know, I was alone in Boston. I didn't really know anybody. I didn't have any like real friends there. I hadn't been there very long. I went out onto the street to go get some money like we had to do in the old days for like the vegetarian food I was having delivered to celebrate by myself. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't feel like I could tell anybody what happened, but I wanted to mark it. So I went outside and I noticed when I was outside, I ended up meeting somebody which plays into the story later, but um, I could, I could read people's minds a little bit. You know, it, it, it's not, 
as literal as it seems. It was like, you know, one, one strong physical sensation that happened was my heart chakra was just blown open. Like literally it's once I sat up and started writing things down and the insight started to come, my, it felt like there was literally light physically pouring out from the front and the, and the back of my heart chakra. And so when I went outside, I was just in love with everybody. Like I literally looked at someone's face standing in line at the cash machine and I felt like I knew his story, you know, not the details, but I could see the heartbreak and I could see the, the loneliness and I could see the joy on this mother's face. It's like, I, I, it was like empathy was, was radically increased. You know, you know, now I wonder if a certain part of my brain was lit up, which allowed me these, you know, cities or, or, you know, powers for a certain period of time, because by the way, this went away. I cannot read minds to that now, you know, it was, it was something that was noticeable time and then gradually went away. Yeah. The precognition and the mind reading that was really, really notable. Soon after that, I, I, I came back, I, you know, vegetarian Chinese food was delivered and I found I couldn't eat it. Um, I couldn't eat quite yet. And I wanted to, to try something. And so I went to my, I had a little sunny alcove um, with my college, you know, green futon still. And I, I, I sat there and I knew somehow that I needed to have a straight spine. I wanted to see if I could do it again, basically. And so I sat back against the futon and made sure my spine was straight. Like I, I, I don't know how I knew to do that, but I, I knew I needed to be really relaxed and really comfortable and have a straight spine. And so I followed my breath, you know, my breath took me there last time. And very, very quickly, I went into, you know, into, you know, we'd say a meditative state probably, right? That's difficult to describe. But what it wasn't as massive sort of uh, light explosion, consciousness, orgasmic, you know, cosmic experience as before. It was much more personal. There was suddenly this presence, you know, this again, capital. And this was really remarkable through it. It was both me and not me. It was other and yet me at the same time. It felt extremely intimate and separate and different at once. And I, I felt a sense of just allowing it to happen, not trying to manipulate it, not trying to cognize it. And I remember writing this in my journal that I was just started to listen as if every pore was an ear, you know, like that full body listening. And suddenly I hear the first instruction, which is no games, don't play games. And it was, you know, which is interesting to me because it was immediately relational. It was like I was being told both a principle to live by and also how to literally show up. It felt like very deep advice, like this isn't going to work if we play games sort of thing. And so then I listened some more, you know, and, and I just opened and listened. And then the next instruction came, which was, was just ask a question. And this voice was not my voice but it was also wordless, if that makes sense. I was told to ask a question, you know, that again, for me in this experience, it needed to be reciprocal. Like they couldn't just tell me I had to ask. And if I didn't ask, I wasn't gonna get anything. 
that's been a real theme. So I sat and then I just said, what do I need to know? You know, that was my question. What do I need to know? And they just said, stay open. You know, stay open. That's it. So that's what I did for a while anyway. One more thing about this 36 hours, kind of part three about this, because this relates to aliens and artists. And I, I'd forgotten about this part of it until I reviewed my journal, until I reviewed my notes. And, you know, I went, I went through the day in a, in a beautiful state and I had noticed the, it, you know, I should say too, when I, when I sat up, I was extremely calm and grounded. So I was not in a um, overexcitable state, like it, it, which sort of surprised me. Like it felt very calming and very grounding. Like I, like I was seeing, watching a movie during this whole 36 hours. It's like I was watching a movie play out, you know, with me and in front of me that I'd already seen. It's like I'd already seen the end to the movie and I was just watching this movie. It was a very strong sense of that. So I get into bed uh, um, at the end of that, that first day and, you know, I had a warm bath. I did, you know, sort of some rose oil and I'm just trying to sort of nurture myself and realizing this is a time to remember and a time to celebrate. And as I get into bed, I remember feeling like, all of my various senses just were turned on. Everything was turned up and tuned in and turned on. Like I was sexually just alive, you know? Um, and I didn't need to touch myself or do anything like that. Like all I needed to do was just feel the blanket on my skin and the pillow. And uh, even looking with my with my eyes at the you know it was a really small room but it had this sort of ornate old fire fireplace because it was an old building you know and you know the beauty and colors of what I saw and the sounds even of the Boston traffic outside and um, it just was like I was literally making love with my senses and I wanted to be with you know the company capital C company so. I remember moving my, my head pillow out of the way so I could have a straight spine, followed my breath, you know, into this space. And, you know, I, I entered this state and this time it was also a little different. It's like I was losing, I was getting less and less subtle as the day went on because in this part of the experience, there was definitely a sense of witness and watching. You know, I was the witness, I was the watcher. It wasn't as non-dual. And again, there was this radiant darkness, suffused light. And then I was very surprised. And I, I remember the it was the witness that was surprised. It's the witness was mildly amused because these art images started coming up out of seemingly nowhere. At first, there was a classic, like psychedelic, one of the Grateful Dead albums that has the psychedelic skull beauty. I don't know. I, I've seen the dead a bunch of times, but I don't know them that well. And um, that came, which I did find humorous because, you know, I like the dead. You go to their shows if you're old enough, but, you know, I, it's not like I followed them that much or cared that much, but that popped up. And then um, 
William Blake's um, The Illuminated Front Piece from his Songs of Experience, which is this, uh, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, it's this um, androgynous being standing fully alert um, with a, holding a, a, a baby on, on his third eye, basically, you know, and both the baby and both this kind of angelic androgynous being are gazing directly into, you know, the camera. So it's, you know, just, it, it, and there's just this archetypal image of, of the, the mystic and the seeker. So first it was the dead album and then it was William Blake. And after that, it became like, it was funny, like these archetypal, because remember, I'm very, you know, we would say sexually aroused at this point, okay? Like, I, my whole body is, you know, there's just, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like, it was extremely erotic. And next, these archetypal images of, um, the Jungians would love this, of my culture start flashing into my mind. It was kind of like mystic porn, you know, it was like this, uh, uh, but they, they had clothes on, like this, um, this cowboy was there, like this cowboy is like, hey, girl, you know, and then this soldier, and then this rock star, and they were, they weren't anybody in particular, but they were like these perfect artistic mental images of male archetypes. And yeah, yeah, each one like was an expression of ego, you know, of, of a, an aspect of ego that was relevant in positive ways based on my culture, you know, um, based on kind of probably how I was raised and, and what I liked. And I went then into an or, orgasmic state, really, that um, lasted in, into sleep and uh, had quite a few lucid dreams that night, none of which are, are necessarily, they, they weren't, they were fun, but they weren't necessarily that remarkable. And when I woke up the next morning, and it was like a Monday, you know, and I and I had to go back to my life and my work. I, I was in the state experience that I was in had come to an end. Again, there were things that were always changed and led me to sort of the next whole chapter of my life very strongly. But yeah, I didn't, the heart chakra energy, you know, my third eye wasn't on fire anymore. My subtle body was, I was sort of back in my body and able to go to work and, and engage. Yeah, so after that, you know, it took some months. I had I had met somebody that day that I went to go get money to buy the vegetarian chow fund. And I got distracted by a relationship for a few months. So I stayed in Boston longer than I intended because one of the clear things, as I mentioned, was the precognitive clarity and also instruction that I needed to go study Tibetan Buddhism and find a yoga teacher or something but it was clear I felt like I sort of had figured out the yoga thing like I could do it by myself in the living room and have some good results but I didn't know anything about Tibetan Buddhism and you know Stuart I desperately even though I knew not to tell people I wanted to tell people I wanted to know what had happened to you know to me with me from me I knew you know one of the the popcorn insights I had was I knew I was not special it was not special. Everybody has this. Everybody is the same in this way. Everybody has this clear light, conscious capacity. We're all the same. Like that just kept coming through my mind. We're all like this. We're all the same. And I knew I obviously, you know, I wasn't the only person who'd had these sort of things happen, but I just couldn't find, this is before Google, right? This is like 97 or something, 98. 
I just didn't know where to look. I didn't know how to find the people that wanted to talk about what I wanted to talk about. So I got distracted for a few months. It took a few months for me to kind of take action. And, but soon thereafter, I quit my job. I left Boston and I started to study Tibetan Buddhism uh, quite seriously. And I moved to the most beautiful place that I had ever been in my life, which is where I now live once again, 20 years later. And, you know, I cashed in all my, my Starbucks stock you know, <laughs> and I just, I, I gathered up enough money to basically go on sabbatical for two years and try and figure out what had happened to me and how to put it into context and find others who wanted to, you know, explore the mysteries that I had been given a, a glimpse of and had glimpsed of. And that led me to study Galukpa uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is the lineage of the Dalai Lama, and go to Nepal and find a teacher, an American teacher, you know, and, and really find, you know, relatively quickly, you know, I like to call it a meta-modern American Buddhist community. This was a very much traditional lineage, but it was an American teacher who was really the first of his kind, very traditionally trained who was passing on uh, Mahayana Buddhism, Middle Way Buddhism, and Vajrayana Buddhism, or the Diamond Way, to these Americans and, you know, North Americans and, you know, Western educated people from all over the world. And yeah, for the next decade, I became an extremely serious Tibetan Buddhist retreater, practitioner, and eventually teacher. And I, what I found there was finally a framework for my experience. You know, the first teachings I went to, the teacher held up a pen, talked about ultimate reality and the emptiness of the pen, and also started talking about clear light, you know, clear light experiences and describing what we might call satori's that really lined up with what had happened to me in that Boston apartment. So I knew I was in the right place. The teachings of ethics and how to be happy <laughs> were a great relief to my heart and my soul. And so why I never actually even described myself as a Buddhist because it I didn't want to disclude other things. Yeah, it, I really dove deeply into that framework. The other thing about, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is when you're deeply practicing and deeply, especially when you get into Vajrayana, which is the diamond way, which takes some years to get qualified initiations and takes a lot of preparation. It is a, the world of anomalies. Your whole mission is to live in the extraordinary, to both cultivate, facilitate, and understand the karmic causes of how to live among celestials, what we might call the fae, you know, these are Western terms, but how to live among beings that are non-human, non-human intelligences, how to contact them, how to connect with them, build a relationship with them, how to become one is the whole goal, become an extraordinary celestial type of being, you know, to the whole point is to get enlightened, quote unquote, enlightened as quickly as possible. And it's definitely an extraordinary journey to do that using techniques that, you know, we don't learn in our Western schools. So once I got into that world, also my anomalous experiences over time, especially once I finished my tantric retreats, that was a real watershed. 
they started to become every day. And I started to, you know, live in that state, that like 36 hour state that I talked about in Boston. Once I started doing my tantric retreats, which are five, six week solitary retreats with the whole goal of connecting with non-human intelligences and becoming more than human yourself, that state became a stage. I started to just live there all the time and be in contact with the company. Yeah. And there's some, um, we could talk, you know, we could talk about some anomalous experiences around that too. Um, But I really found a wonderful frame and, you know, Sangha or community that was really, you know, cultivating these sorts of experiences. Um, And up till then also, I have to say, you know, the big, whether I was a kid or the experience in Boston or what happened, always made meaning, made spiritual meaning out of it. Like with my personal framework, I would always say, oh, that was a spiritual experience. You know, when I saw with my eyeballs a big flaming fireball in the sky after closing the boundary of my first Vajrayogini retreat, this is the deity I was working with who arrives in a a, a circle of flame. You know, that's how she's always portrayed. She's she's got a ring of fire around her and she's red like fire. So I do my first tantric retreat. I'm like 32 years old. I close the boundary. I'm not going to see anybody, talk to anybody, no radio, no TVs, no books, you know, extremely strict, extremely uh, traditional asking Vajugini, this fire red lady to come. And I look up and there's a fireball in the sky. You know, these sorts of things start happening on the daily, you know, once I start doing that. And, and I thought about them as spiritual. I never considered them anything else until later when sort of galactic, you know, galactic uh, contact started happening. After about 10 years, uh, 12 years, actually, very much in the beautiful community of classical yoga. By then I started a a company called the Yoga Studies Institute. It was a nonprofit and still exists, um, although I'm not involved anymore. It's a nonprofit yoga educational company. We taught classic Sanskrit texts like the Yoga Sutra and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika all over the world, really when yoga was taking off and everybody wanted to become a yoga teacher. So it was a way to really bring deep philosophy into the cultural arena of yoga. Um, because in the Yoga Sutra, for example, there are two sutras out of, you know, four chapters out of, I don't know how many hundred or something that are about physical yoga. The rest is all about these experiences that I'm telling you about. It's about the clear light. It's about cities or powers. It's about the nature of reality. So I'd spent my time teaching people how to <laughs> see the clear light through really a, a strongly uh, Tibetan Buddhist influence interpretation of the yoga sutra yeah that jumps to probably the next biggest most notable in terms of life impact anomalous experience so by then you know this is about 10 years later after the first time in boston and i'm i'm living and breathing you know connection with non-human intelligences precognitive dreams i lucid dream most nights super synchronicities are happen on the regular they're just sort of how it is. You know, I'm teaching all over the world. I'm running this nonprofit that has a lot of meaning and finishing up my traditional Vajrayana training, which was extremely diligent, studying Tibetan and Sanskrit texts four months out of the year, two months out of the year in retreat, 
teaching three months out of the year around the world. You know, I just was on this regular schedule of solitary retreat six weeks, go study with my teachers to, you know, finish up the, do the next Tantra course series, Tibetan and Sanskrit, go out and teach in the world, come back and do retreat. You know, I was just on this. That was my life. The Dharma was my life. And I was getting ready to support a three-year retreat to help co-lead and support this three-year retreat that was going to happen, solitary retreat. And I was teaching in, I was teaching the Yoga Sutra, actually, uh, chapter one of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is about, there's a lot of debate about it, but it's about 150 common era or AD. Now they call it common era from the translators that I trust. They feel that that's about the time this text was written, by the way. And I was teaching the text and going through it line by line in a big yoga studio in Toronto, Canada. And by then I was, this is the era of Lama Kimberly. You know, I was Lama Kimberly. That's what my students and my teachers called me. I'd moved into becoming a teacher, frankly, because uh, I mean, I assume the few people I had told my, my experiences to were my teachers. Also in Tibetan Buddhism, you're not supposed to talk about it. You are not supposed to talk about your experiences except to your teachers. And then they basically tell you to be humble and don't take it that seriously, you know? And I did notice that I was pushed and encouraged to teach pretty young and pretty early, which also suits my personality. I'm a teacher, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a trainer, I'm that type. So, so that also fits, but I was definitely pushed by my teachers to do that. And I, I can only assume it has to do with those experiences. So by then I'm in, I'm in, I'm in this group, like I'm kind of living the life, like I full of meaning, traveling the world, running this nonprofit. Of course, there's dramas and issues as in every community, but feel pretty happy and clear with even, you know, the Tibetan group, Tibetan Buddhist American, meta-modern American kids that we were all trying to practice Tantra. You know, there's issues in every spiritual community. And again, that's another podcast, but, um, you know, felt pretty healthy and, and, and clear with it all. And I was up in Toronto and it was the first class and I'm sitting up on kind of the dais, you know, a little bit of a stage. There were, oh, I don't know, maybe 60 people out in the audience. And I do the first sutra, Yoga Shitta Varti Nirodach. Yoga is, is, there's lots of translations of it, but, but the, the goal of yoga is to stop your mind twisting things around, basically. See, it says right there, like in the first or second verse, like the goal of yoga is not to stand on your head. The goal of yoga is to stop your mind from messing things up, basically, is what it means. And I look out into the audience, and I remember, actually, I am holding a pen um, in my hand, because it's like in the foreground, and I look out into the audience, and I see these blue lights that I realize are eyeballs, and they're so bright. It's like there's sparkling. They're these sparkling blue, like headlamps is, is what they, they seem like. And I'm looking into these headlamps and I fall into them. And suddenly I'm in, it felt like a bunker. Like the unconscious is so funny. I literally felt like I was in this underground bunker and there was this bunk bed. And on top of the bunk bed was this boy. And as soon as I look and I recognize this boy is on the top of this bunk bed, I'm sitting next to him. You know, suddenly I'm sitting next to him and I look at him and we have this wordless, you know, understanding, this wordless exchange that happens, telepathic exchange, that he is my son. 
And next thing you know, I'm out of it. I come out of it and I'm still looking into those headlamps, blue headlamps, which, you know, sort of uh, focus into eyeballs, into these very laughing, smiling eyeballs. And I'm still holding the pen. And I look down, I have no idea how long time has passed, right? And I look down and I had, at that days, there were students that travel with me. And there were, so, so my, my friends, you know, my student friends were in the front row and I checked to see if, you know, what their expressions were. And a couple of them were looking at me quite funny. So I knew that I had paused longer than, um, than was normal. And, and I found out later, I probably paused for a good five seconds, which luckily isn't too long, but it is sort of long for the teacher to pause mid-sentence and stare off into the distance. And I looked at those blue eyes and I knew that that was the father of my child. And it was our son. And I, up to that point, had never wanted children consciously. You still didn't really at that point. It wasn't something at all that, that was on my mind. I was kind of living the spiritual dharmic dream, quite content with how things were. And I had, you know, being in the, in the position, I had been at that point for a few years, conflict teacher in particular, I hear a lot of anomalous stories. You know, I hear about what happens on retreat or doesn't happen on re retreat. I hear about the dreams, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, the modern minister, right? Or people tell their yoga teachers, you know, they don't know who to tell what happened to them. So they tell their yoga teachers. And, and so I, I played that role for people. And um, so I knew enough to know through my own experiences to take that vision seriously and also not so seriously because I was in another relationship at the time. He was in another, you know, you know, it's just, it made no sense. It absolutely made no sense. But I also knew that it was gonna happen and that I'd, I'd seen it. You know, I'd, I'd learned to trust those precognitive hits. And I shared that experience because it only was a few seconds and it wasn't maybe as dramatic as, you know, a big fireball in the sky or, you know, I've seen like, rainbow bodied animals on retreat, like with my eyeballs, I see, you know, things that come in through the five senses, but it changed my life. That precognitive understanding of what was going to happen helped guide, you know, difficult decisions in the months and years ahead, you know, helped, like it was a teleological moment, you know, it was a future telling moment. I think of Eric Wargo's, you know, block theory, which I know you also did a podcast with Eric, yes. Correct. We did two episodes with him. I'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. People should listen to that. But where you can, it, it, it doesn't seem so spooky to me now. It seems in the moment to be able to, to see into the, you know, at least the potentials of a future um, were there. I still feel like I had choices. It wasn't absolutely preordained, but I learned to trust the visions. You know, it was like these breadcrumbs. And today, you know, Ted and I are married and have a 10 year old uh, boy. And that was Mr. Blue Eyes. He's Mr. Blue Eyes, obviously, who I absolutely believe is at least part celestial. And that, that changed everything because that, you know, in the, in the couple of years after that happened, it took a couple of years for, you know, the karma. It's not like I like, we went home and left our partners or something, you know, it took a couple of years for life circumstances to bring us together. And after that, you know, everything, it's like my entire path changed again. I, I went from being sort of like a three-year retreat, no children, tantric teacher, to very, very clearly being told that the mission now was to be a householder. And we had to get out of the bubble and go live with the, go be normal, you know, go, go live with the people, have a child, that enlightenment wasn't going to happen for me 
locking myself away to do more solitary retreat. I'd already done practically three years at that point. It was going to happen at the breakfast table. You know, it was going to happen. Bodhicitta was really going to happen on those multiple nights when your child is crying, you know, and you need to comfort them. Like it was so obvious. <laughs> that seems so obvious now that, you know, for me, it was being successful, like making money in the world, having a child, you know, that is what you do in Tantra anyway. That's who Tantra was designed for. It's not designed to lock yourself away with your own little bubble. You know, it's designed to be in the world and making an impact with people that have never heard of it, you know, and using your power and using your love and using your wisdom for something good. And it's dangerous because of that. But yeah, when I met Ted, it's like, I'd been studying and teaching Tantra for seven years at that point. I'd done all my solitary retreats and all of that. But when I met him, it was like Tantra knocked down my door and dragged me out by the hair and said, you're going to get serious. And in that, I, again, mostly happy, mostly healthy, but I left the spiritual community and went undercover in a way, like, you know, became a householder. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years among other things, you know, but that's what I've been doing. Private teaching and um, focusing on, on being a mother and a wife. For more information on Kimberly Lafferty, take a left at Bhutan and remain in solitude for three years in the Nepalese Himalayas, surviving on yak butter and nettles. Or just join Plus, because next week our Plus and Patreon members will be treated to part two of this conversation. We talk prostitution and esoteric realms, the secret secrets of secretive tantra, how celestial beings suggest parents prevent greys from abducting their kids, also how the realms of the dead may intersect with alien territories. I mean, I host this show and I just joined Plus because where she goes in the next episode makes Marco Polo look like a fucking shut-in. Also, you could just become a patron. There's so much stuff on there, it's like a lazy Susan of forbidden accoutrement. There are more than 100 exclusive videos and recordings on my Patreon page, and many of them are shocking exposés of Minus listeners. This Minus listener groping a porpoise. That Minus listener snorting the pulverized ivory of endangered Sumatran elephants. Those Minus listeners chewing with their mouths open. Gross Minus, you busted, because my patrons see it all. But your secrets are safe because Patreon is private. So the fetid fetishes featured in your grisly Saturnalia are behind a paywall just like your mama. That's true. I kid, Minus listeners, we didn't forget you. Next week on the free show, Fran Drescher reads Finnegan's Wake. Enjoy. June 21st, 1980, 23-year-old musician Rusty Hudson had just finished a performance with the band Excalibur. The musicians, who didn't use drugs or drink much at all, returned to their motel room. As they wound down from the concert and conversation, a brilliant flickering light illumined the room. As the band members paused and scanned the space for an explanation, moments later a blinding light poured over them. Hudson said it was, quote, as if someone had suddenly opened the door to the sun, end quote. An entity then emerged from the light, bulbous head, 
Two large black slanted eyes, short in stature. Time seemed to dilate. The band members appeared to one another as though swimming in slow motion. A deafening high-frequency buzz crescendoed. And then, the next thing Rusty knew he was on his bed in a different room. His motel room. He slept through the next day, unable to rouse. When he finally returned to speak to the other band members, they all recalled the blinding light, the flashing, and the buzz. But an inexplicable sense that they should not discuss the previous night was oddly mutual. The band broke up shortly after. Going forward, Hudson was plagued by insomnia, recurring nightmares, hypervigilance. He became obsessed with creating artistic renderings of the strange face he remembered from that night. He bought Communion by Whitley Strieber and Intruders by Bud Hopkins, but could not bring himself to read them. His girlfriend persuaded him to reach out to Bud Hopkins, which he did after a year of avoidance. Assessed by two psychologists and Bud Hopkins, Rusty was found to be of good mental health and sane. Indicators were his memories were real. Under regression, Rusty further recalled being taken to another environment where he was examined and procedures were performed. He described the environment as unrecognizably alien. When Rusty finally came forward with his experiences, he related that, quote, This has been extremely difficult for me. Going public with a story like this is bound to raise a few eyebrows among my associates. I am an Ivy League-educated professional musician living in New York City. My reputation is important to me. I should also like to protect my family and friends from the sort of questionable publicity such disclosures generate. He continues, The only hope that it will ever be understood lies in our refusal to continue denying its existence. Only then can we get down to the business of learning who or what has decided to embark on this strange relationship with us." End quote. Rusty's account is in the book UFO, The Continuing Enigma, which was published in 1991, but I found for $10 on Amazon. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or check the show notes for a link. Also, the Experiencer Group, a membership site offering support and connection for those who've had precognition, near-death, mediumship, lucid dreams, out-of-body, contact, abduction, and more. Click the link in the show notes to become a member and help build positive anomalous culture. Close your eyes and watch them spin. Seven orbs in a suit of skin. Seven candles up and down the spine. Running from the anus to the super mind. It's a miracle. And there's a hers
just going till the end is out Can you move that much or sit that still? You won't see the wonders until You do But this rose will burn your nose All your veins will come across Gushing love